If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Hi, I'm here with Brett McCardle, who's going to be talking to us about agraphia. Uh, my name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, and I'm looking forward to tonight's topic. I feel like there's just so much to learn, and I'm going to the right source for it. So, Brett, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks again for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Good, good. Pleasure. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, tell me a little bit more about you, Brett. Um, where are you? What do you do? Yeah, so my name is Brett McArdle. I am a speech and language pathologist uh, based out of the Seattle, Washington area. And I am the owner of a private practice called Archways Aphasia Rehabilitation Services. I primarily work with people with aphasia and I really like for my treatment to be very theoretically sound, to have really strong theoretical rationale for the treatment approaches that we're taking, but also very functional. So making sure that what we're doing in treatment is gonna have an immediate impact in someone's day-to-day -day life. So I feel like that's kind of the, uh, the excitement of being SLP is we have so much theory that we can really rely on and kind of nerd out over and then really apply it in a very meaningful and functional way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, well, let's begin at the beginning, Brett. What even is agraphia? Yeah, so from the very beginning, agraphia here is an acquired impairment in the ability to produce written language due to something like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. And what I think is kind of exciting about agraphia in terms of aphasia management is that writing has both a language component to it. So for example, correctly spelling words and being able to use appropriate syntax in order to write out complete sentences. But there's also a motor component to writing as well in terms of letter formation and appropriate spacing between letters and words. So this is an area of aphasia management that our occupational therapy colleagues can play a large role in and an area that can really be targeted through a team approach with them. Yeah, so I've got, you know, there are four kind of major elements that need to happen for, for written language to be produced. So first, you kind of need to think about the linguistic contents of your message. So choosing the words you want to use, putting those words in the right order to make sentences and then modifying those words as needed in order to fit the grammatical rules of English. And then once you've gotten your linguistic message generated in your mind, you can then move on to the second element, which is spelling out those individual words. So choosing the right letters and using your sound to letter correspondence skills as needed in order to get your message on paper. So I feel like those are the two elements, again, the linguistic content and the spelling that really are our areas to focus on as SLPs. The next two elements needed are visuospatial organization. So making sure that the spacing between letters and words is appropriate for people to uh, identify what's even there. And then the general motor output of writing. 
So the hand-eye coordination that's needed, the type of hand grip that's needed, and just the overall ability to make the general strokes needed for each letter. And those two areas are where our OT colleagues can really play a role. So again, written language has both that language and motor aspects to it. And both SLP and OT can play a role in treatment depending on the exact needs of the client. So similar to Alexia, there's kind of been two major camps that have come up when trying to determine different types of agraphia classifications. So again, also similar to Alexia, there's all sorts of written errors that can appear in agraphia. So let's say you're doing a written picture naming task and you show a picture to your client and ask them to write down the name of the object they see. So if someone's trying to write the word ocean, they may actually write it out in a phonetically plausible way, like spelling it O-S-H-E-N. Or they might try to write the word cat if they see a picture of a dog and make sort of a semantically related foil. Or maybe they write down a word and you can't even make out what the letters are because of problems with the letter formation. So again, there's lots of different ways that agraphia errors can kind of manifest themselves. And through studying, again, all these different types of errors, there's two camps of classification systems that have kind of emerged. So you've got the syndrome approach, and then you've got the psycholinguistic approach. So in the syndrome approach, you're trying to categorize agraphia subtypes based off of lesion location and kind of general broad language abilities. So terms that SLPs may have seen thrown around that come from a syndrome approach include pure agraphia, where the only problem a person has is in terms of their uh, language skills is just spelling and just the language components. There's also agraphia with alexia, which is both reading and writing problems. Now the syndrome approach also has classifications for the motor challenges as well. So there's something called apraxic agraphia, which is problems with forming letters, and then spatial agraphia, which is problems with putting the appropriate spaces between letters and writing in a horizontal straight line. Now, these classifications are really helpful in terms of really quickly identifying and placing patients within groups. But a big downside is that people within these groups will, may look drastically different from each other. So for instance, if you have two people with pure agraphia, one person may have significant problems writing single words correctly, while the other person does pretty well with single words, but they have more of their breakdown at either writing full sentences or paragraphs. So again, it's really quick and easy communication between providers when you use one of these syndrome classifications, but clients within the subtypes can look drastically different. So that's the syndrome approach. And now I'll talk a bit about the psycholinguistic approach. So the psycholinguistic approach was really born from researchers studying the exact types of writing errors that people with agraphia make. And by studying these errors, they've been able to create psycholinguistic models of writing that basically outline the exact steps needed to write a word from beginning to end. So starting with the concept of the word, you want to write and then ending with the written word on paper. So by using these psycholinguistic models and deciding which parts of the model are damaged due to the specific types of errors our clients are making, 
we can then use that to classify agraphia types. So if you've ever heard terms like surface agraphia or phonological agraphia or deep agraphia, those all come from that psycholinguistic approach. And I personally really like this approach because it helps to really describe a person's unique strengths and weaknesses when it comes to their writing ability and makes our treatment plan for them all that more individualized. Okay, so are those all the different types of agraphias that we could like place people in if they fit into nice tidy categories? <laughs> yeah, you know, if they fit in a nice tidy categories, exactly. There's actually a couple more that I'll get into further along. I'll kind of talk about the psycholinguistic model first, just kind of a general overview. Now, I've again provided a handout of what an example of this model might look like. And unlike that Alexia model, there's not really a straightforward way to visualize this model for more of a podcast kind of presentation, because there's just a lot going on in it. But I think the most important things to know is that the model has two main components. You've got the language aspects of writing a word, which are known as the central components, and then the motor aspects of writing a word, which are referred to as the peripheral components. So this model can be used as part of your assessment when you're doing either writing to dictation tasks, which is where you say a word, your client writes down what you say, or written picture naming. So again, you showing a picture of an object and your client writes down the name of the object. Now, this model says that there are basically two major ways to write a word. If this is a word that is familiar to you and it exists in your lexicon, you can write the word as a whole without having to try and sound out and you know, go letter by letter. So this is known as the lexical writing route. So again, you know what this word should look like and you know what it means. So it's able to be processed by your semantic system. The other way of writing a word is by spelling it out letter by letter. So you're using what's known as your phoneme to grapheme conversion skills. So you're taking each sound and writing down the letter that traditionally goes with each sound. And this is known as the non-lexical writing route because since the word isn't already in your lexicon, it's not able to go through your semantic system and have meaning assigned to it. So this is, you know, if you are writing or if you're presented with words that are from a different language or maybe they're non-words or made-up words. So again, these two ways are the two major ways to spell out a word. And then you get into the motor aspects of forming the letters and using the right strokes and all that good stuff that OT attends to. Now, again, this is certainly an oversimplification of all the steps needed to write a word, but you can look more at these handouts on your own time to kind of see the exact components and different processes that are part of writing out a single word. So again, now that we've kind of briefly talked about the model, we can now talk about how we can use it to assess the graphic and categorize our clients into different agraphia classifications using that psycholinguistic approach. So to start with, you're going to want an assessment tool that aligns itself really well with a psycholinguistic approach. And my personal go-to is a test called the Arizona Battery for Reading and Spelling. And the way it works for spelling is that you have a list of words that you read aloud and your client writes what words you say. So this is a writing to dictation task. Now these words are controlled for different linguistic variables like regularity, whether the spelling matches conventional 
letter to sound correspondences, frequency, or how often the word occurs, and number of letters in the word. There's also a list of non-words as well. And all these factors are important because certain types of errors with certain types of words will let you know that there are problems in the lexical or the non-lexical writing route. And this is gonna give us those nice psycholinguistic classifications. Brett, is the uh, battery that you just talked about from Arizona, is that the free one that's online from the University of Arizona? Yep, that is the free one. So definitely go to University of Arizona's um, aphasia research lab page, it's headed by Dr. Beeson. And they've got that great free assessment right there with a couple of other free assessments as well for different kind of language tasks. And they've also got a huge collection of treatment resources as well. So definitely just a goldmine of information and resources for clinicians, especially when it comes to reading and writing. Mm, excellent. They have resources for CART, the treatment CART, right? Yep, okay. they sure do. Um, and what's nice about their resources too is like you have the full protocol. They actually provide you examples of certain word lists that they've used in their research studies, which is really mm -hmm. helpful when I talk later about kind of this um, treatment continuum that they've developed, which is really cool. Yeah, excellent. Ooh, good. I'm looking forward. We have the link for that battery at the University of Arizona in the show notes, and then I'll go grab it and post it in the chat feature here for tonight's participants too. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so I'll now go through a few of the major classifications on the handouts that I've provided, and we'll start with surface agraphia. So in surface agraphia, a primary feature here is that there's a real difficulty with spelling irregularly spelled words. So if someone is able to spell regularly spelled and non-words well, that implies that their non-lexical writing route, again, the sound to letter correspondence skills are relatively preserved, but their lexical route is damaged because they can't write those irregularly spelled words you're not able to write those words out letter by letter because they don't follow the usual sounds and letter correspondences in English. Again, they're irregular. You just have to know them. Uh, they have to exist in your lexicon. So if someone can't spell those irregular words, that means that there's damage in the lexicon, so damage to the lexical writing route. Now, the other side of this would be a preserved lexical route, but impaired non-lexical route. So this would be a phonological agraphia. And the main issue here is that there's a real difficulty with spelling non-words. So people with this kind of profile have a hard time with that because, again, their sound to letter correspondence skills are damaged. So again, the lexical route is relatively okay, and their lexicons are relatively preserved but they cannot spell out new words to them. It's very, very difficult without that sound to letter correspondence. Now, if you have someone who has problems with both routes, you're then gonna have what's known as a deep agraphia. And what we'll see here is that you'll have someone who has problems spelling non-words, but they'll also make semantic errors as well. So for example, for the word time, they might write clock or something like that. So again, there's damage to both writing routes, which leads to a deep agraphia profile. Now, those are kind of the, the three most traditional agraphia types, if you would, but there are two more that I also want to talk about. 
The first one is what's called a global agraphia. And this is if you have someone with really profound writing impairments. So they also have damage to both writing routes, but whereas someone with a deep agraphia will be able to write some words correctly, a person with a global agraphia is not going to write anything correctly. So again, if the word is broom, they might, something, they might write something just completely out of left field like aller, just no relationship whatsoever to that target word. And the last one I wanna talk about real quick is called graphemic buffer impairments. And what's going on here is that someone has trouble spelling out typically the ending letters of a word. And it's kind of hypothesized that their storage space for holding letters is really damaged. So therefore they do better spelling shorter words with less letters, but longer words are really, really tough for them. So I'd say that those are kind of the big ones to know for us from an SLP standpoint. Again, there are other classifications, but they have more to do with fine motor movement. And we can let OT address that better than us. And when it comes to what we can do for handwriting, I think the best thing to do is to basically screen their handwriting and check how legible it is. Now, if you're unsure if someone's spelling issues are due to a language component or their ability to write, then there are a couple things available to us to help us see what the breakdown is. You could take away the handwriting part and then ask them to either verbally spell out loud, or you could have them arrange letter tiles on a table or have them type out on a keyboard. You could also do a plain old copying task where you provide the written model and ask them to copy it and then see if they can spell the word correctly if the word is right in front of them. And these kind of tasks are going to help you see if their spelling problems, again, are more due to language issues or due to handwriting. So if someone can spell either verbally out loud, using letter tiles or using the keyboard, that suggests that the handwriting is really an issue. But if they can't spell at all using any of these different methods, then there's probably some language issues going on. Now that is uh, talking about assessment at the single word level. And now I'll kind of dive a little bit into treatment at the single word level. So again, now that we've gone over these different agraphia classifications, we're gonna be talking about treatment at the single word level. And like we kind of said before, the big name for both reading and writing, assessment and treatment, and aphasia is Dr. Beeson over at the University of Arizona. And again, her lab website is amazing and definitely worth checking out because she has all sorts of free assessment and treatment resources for clinicians when it comes to reading and writing. Now, when it comes to agraphia treatment, her research lab has developed a, a sort of continuum of treatment approaches for targeting spelling. Of course, you want to individualize everything you do to best fit the individual needs of your clients. But she sort of has a three-step continuum that you might think about when you're approaching your spelling treatment. And this continuum starts with a lexical approach. So training specific words, how specific words are spelled. Then going on to a phonological approach where you're using the words that you just trained to really help target sound to letter correspondence. And then moving on to an interactive approach. So using those phonological skills that you just worked on to help write a regularly spelled words that are phonologically plausible, and then using assistive technology to figure out how that word should actually be spelled. 
So these three approaches really build on one another and can help with targeting spelling. So I'll go a little bit into detail on each of these approaches. Again, the first step here is what's referred to as lexical treatment, where you're training the spelling of specific individual words. And this might be a treatment approach you consider for people who have impairments in the lexical writing route. So for the words you train, you're being very deliberate in the words you choose so that each word highlights a certain letter or letter sequence. So for instance, you wanna choose a word that starts with a D and makes the D sound. You wanna choose a word that starts with the B and makes the B sound and so on and so forth. And the reason you're doing this is so that you'll have keywords ready to be used for the next step of phonological treatment. So you'll definitely want to customize these words and make them as individualized to your client as possible. So thinking of like family member names or words that relate to favorite hobbies. But again, there's a list of words that Dr. Beeson's research lab has also provided in their materials that you can use and borrow from as well if you don't have an individualized word for a certain letter or sound. So once you've gotten all your words picked out, you're then ready to start training them. And there are a couple of different protocols that are available for this. But one that I would recommend is called anagram, copy, and recall treatment, ACRT. And this is actually a hybrid of two other approaches. So it's a combination of anagram and copy therapy, where you have clients arrange letter tiles to spell a word and then copy that. And copy and recall therapy, where you have a client copy a written model, take the model away, and then have them write it from memory. So the steps of this hybrid treatment, ACRT, is that you show them a picture of one of the keywords that you're training and have them try to write the word. If they have problems with that, you then move on to providing the letter tiles needed to spell that word. And you mix them up and you ask them to put them in the right order. And once that's done, you then have them copy the word that's been spelled out using those letter tiles. And then you hide the word and the letter tiles and then ask your client to write the word from memory. So because it's a hybrid approach, it's pretty easy to go a step back if your client is having problems with this. And you can either just do copy recall treatment or just anagram and copy treatment. So once you've trained all these words and your client has them down pretty well, you then go into the next step of the treatment continuum, which is phonological treatment. So here you're retraining the sound to letter correspondence. So the way this works is that for each consonant and vowel, you'll ask your client to write the letter that goes with that sound. So for instance, let's say you're working on the B sound. You'll ask your client to write the letter that goes with B. And if they can't do that, then you'll have them try and think of their key word for that sound. So let's say for our clients, a picture of someone they know named Bob. If they can't think of their keyword, you then show them a picture of the keyword and have them write down the name. And once they write the name, you'll then have them underline the letter that goes with that sound and then really reinforce again that sound to letter correspondence. Um, I also like to do some blending and segmenting tasks too. Uh, while I'm doing this, again, just to really kind of drive home that sound to letter correspondence. And then lastly, once they've gotten much stronger in their phonological skills, you can then move on to the interactive treatment. So the last part of their treatment continuum. 
So here you provide your clients with an electronic spell checker. And what's really cool about these electronic spell checkers is that they're tools that are word, they're spell checkers, but they're not like a typical uh, spell checker like on a word processor, like in Microsoft, because in a typical processor, the way spell check works is that it'll just look for words that are visually similar. Um, it actually ignores the sounds in the words. It really only cares about how the word looks. So an electronic spell checker is really cool in that it'll spell check due to how the words sound. So for instance, if you have someone who writes or types out the word ocean and they spell out O-S-H-E-N, so a phonologically plausible way, a normal spell checker, like a Microsoft Word, is going to recommend that, oh, you meant to spell the word ashen because it's going just for the visuals. But this electronic spell checker is going to see that word, think about the sounds that those letters make, and then give ocean as an option choice. So these electronic spell checkers are, are pretty cheap. And there's also an app I know that also does this um, called type-o that you can have people install on their smartphones if that's an option for your client. But again, the main gist here is that you are training the use of this assistive technology to help with spelling those irregularly spelled words. Um, Brett, I have a question. How do I know that I'm getting a electronic spell checker that's matching for sounds of words rather than just what like Word document spell check does? How do I know the difference? Typically, they will put in the description that it specifically will do phonetically plausible spellings. And I think just the term itself, if I'm not mistaken, kind of implies that, oh, we're looking actually for sounds versus just visuals alone. Okay. And you said they were like not too expensive. Are we talking like $20, $60? Like what yeah. price are we looking at? Yep. 20 bucks is pretty typical from what I've seen. Um, you know, there are some that are probably have more bells and whistles and whatnot that are more expensive, but I'd say like 20 bucks is pretty, pretty standard. Okay. All right, cool. Thanks. Yeah, totally. So again, kind of following this treatment continuum that they've developed at the University of Arizona, you'll be able to target your spelling in a really systematic way. Now, there are some other treatments at the single word level out there, like Johnson's multi-step treatment that targets all aspects of the writing process. So for one word, you'll do all sorts of lexical decision tasks, writing to dictation, copying, word picture matching, and then all sorts of letter to sound and sound to letter tasks. Again, it's not a systematic dive through each letter and sound in English like that Beeson continuum is, but it's a great option for treatment and also as part of the home exercise program as well. Brett, uh, we had a question about the app used as the electronic spell checker, was that mm -hmm. type O? Yeah, so it is capital T, Y, P, and then hyphen O. Okay. And I've used that in the past. Hopefully it's still available on the Apple store or wherever you get apps from. But that is an app that I've used that does phonologically plausible spelling, like these electronic spell checkers do. Okay, yes, I think I see it. It's the TYP-OHD writing is for everybody. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> All right. And then another question, if you could please review the steps in the phonological approach, please. Yeah, absolutely. So phonological approach, 
again, when you start this approach, you're kind of assuming that you have a list of keywords that your client is able to write pretty accurately. So for this phonological treatment, again, for the very first step, you are going to ask your client to write the letter that goes with whatever sound it is that you're targeting. So again, if you're working on the B sound, you'll ask your client to write the letter that goes with B. And if they can't do that, then you'll have them try and think of what their keyword is for that sound. So again, one of the words that you know is one of their keywords. And if they can't think of that keyword, you can then show them a picture of it and have them write the name. And once they write the name, you'll then have them underline the letter that goes with that sound. And then again, really reinforce those sound to letter correspondence skills. Um, and again, on that University of Arizona website, they've got a great, very easy to follow protocol, step-by-step -step of how to do that. All right, excellent, thank you. I put a link for the Type O app in the chat feature for everyone, and I'll update the show notes to have that in there too. Perfect, thank you. No, thank you. These are great tools. We love having tools at our fingertips. Good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So that's kind of, you know, the, the big things to know for the single word level. And now I'll kind of talk about assessment and treatments for writing beyond the single word. So the sentence and the paragraph levels. So when we're looking at factors beyond just spelling, we're looking at other linguistic skills like syntax and morphology. That being said, there's actually not too much that is widely available in terms of writing specific formal assessments designed for people with aphasia. There is one that is available that is part of a larger aphasia battery that I really love. It's the Comprehensive Aphasia Test, and there's a written picture description subtest. And in this subtest, you have a picture and your client is asked to write about what's happening. And then you score according to the number of words written that are appropriate and correctly spelled, along with scoring for how grammatical the written text is. Outside of this subtest though, I like to take existing formal tests and really adapt them for written language. So for instance, I might take the sentence production test for aphasia by Will Shire and colleagues, uh, which is a test that looks at spoken expression using structured picture events. And I'll modify that to have my clients write the sentences out instead, and then can do some informal analysis on how, how the syntax is looking and how someone's morphology is looking. If I'm going for more specific information specifically on syntax, I might take a test like the Northwestern Assessment of Verbs and Sentences, and then again, adapt it so that I'm not asking my client to speak their responses, but instead to write them and then informally look at those. Another thing I might do as well is take one of the tasks from the aphasia bank protocol, like the peanut butter and jelly exposition task or one of the picture description tasks and have my client write so that I can informally assess how written structure is at a discourse level. And when it comes to treatments beyond the single word level, our treatment is somewhat similar in that there are some structured protocols for writing at the sentence and paragraph levels but you also might find yourself adapting currently existing protocols to target writing as well. So for protocols that do exist, uh, there's a great article from Salas and Edwards are the authors, and it's a 2010 article, and they have a treatment approach for writing at the sentence level that focuses on writing subject, verb, object sentences, while also training 
consistent tense, such as present progressive ing. And in this approach, you're using what's referred to as a cue and copy method, where you give your client cues to generate more and more written language. And then you can also provide a written model of the sentence as needed for your client to copy. Another option you might consider at more of the discourse level is the written variation of attentive reading and constrained summarization, where the client is asked to read an article in two to three sentence chunks, write down keywords from the article, and then they're asked to provide a written summary of the article using those keywords that they wrote down. And one more option at the discourse level is that in the literature, some researchers have modified the treatment of underlying forms protocol to include a written component, which they call the discourse training module. Now, treatment of underlying forms is a syntax treatment where you're really explicitly targeting complex syntax structures through the use of written sentences on note cards that match a picture stimulus. So you start out with a, with a sentence and there's all the words of the sentence on note cards. And then you rearrange the note cards to show how changing the word order can create new sentence types. And there's a big emphasis on identifying the subject, verb, and object of sentences. Now, what's really cool about this extra discourse training module is that once the client is done with writing their single sentence and you've gone through the tough protocol as normal, the client is then asked to write a five sentence paragraph that somehow incorporates the sentence type that you've been working on. So for instance, if you've been working on, let's say passive sentences, your client will be asked to include a passive voice structure in their paragraph somewhere. So what I've done with this is I've had a client who um, bought a boat a while ago and he really wanted to share all the adventures that he had been taking on his boat over social media to some of his friends. So we used pictures that he had taken such as you know him steering the boat and fishing and stuff. And it was really neat to use those pictures as part of our traditional tough protocol. And then to encourage him when he was drafting, you know, his five sentence paragraph that he's going to put on Facebook to share these pictures with, to again, really use some of those different sentence structures we had been trying out uh, to really have his writing become more alive and more engaging to read because of all the different syntax variety. So again, lots of uh, kind of modifying protocols in the literature so far. I'm hopeful though that in the future, there'll be more kind of writing specific treatment protocols, especially at higher levels. Now, there are also some assistive technologies that we can think about when it comes to geographia. Again, those electronic spell checkers are really cool tools that we can use. There's also some great speech to text software that we can also investigate for our clients where you speak and a computer program will type out what you're saying. And one of the most popular ones is Dragon Naturally Speaking, which has this really cool voice learning program that learns your voice and kind of is able to more easily adapt to your specific voice to help with kind of the speech recognition. But Google Docs also has a voice typing feature as well. So something that you can investigate for that too. Did you say that was Google Box? I didn't quite catch the last word. Sorry, Google Docs. Okay, Doc, okay, got it. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so those are kind of the three things that you use the most or you recommend with your patients? Yeah, I think those are probably the, the most bang for your buck and seem to, I'd say, be the most popular out there that I see. Mm -hmm. 
If I can ask you about some of the treatment for the sentence and discourse level that you were just talking about. Yeah. I think I might've missed it because I was trying to look something up at the same time, which is a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) You called it the tough protocol. Was that it? Yeah. I, so sorry, tough stands for treatment of underlying forms. And that's the syntax protocol where you're really targeting complex syntax and kind of the idea behind it. It's really more of a spoken expression and auditory comprehension treatment for understanding different sentence types. But what's cool about this protocol is that there is research to suggest that targeting more complex sentence structures actually generalizes to simpler sentence structures as long as they're kind of linguistically related. The protocol is a little involved. You know, there is a great packet that they sell from Northwestern University that provides all sorts of picture stimuli and is really clear cut um, protocol of how to do it because there are lots of steps to do all the different types of sentences. But if anyone has the the Chapey textbook, Roberta Chapey, I think it's in the fifth edition now. And that textbook, she also has a really nice kind of step-by-step protocol of how to do the tough treatment. So again, it's a more involved one, but it's a fantastic one, especially because, again, for trying to write at higher levels of language, I think it's syntax a lot of the time that really kind of trips people up. So to be able to adapt a syntax treatment to writing is just really, really excellent. Yeah, I agree. I'm really glad that you kind of touched on the complexity approach, which is where like when you address the more complex levels that they have like that trickle down effect, where I looked up some research just like a little bit on these areas because I got really excited by it because I had an experience with a patient with moderately severe aphasia. And um, I started doing sentence level stuff with him because honestly, I wasn't getting anywhere with single word level. Like we were just spinning our wheels. And so I was like, let's just go crazy. And it worked for him. It was so amazing. And I was like, that was very unexpected because we're, we're taught this traditional hierarchy. You stair step your way up, but the complexity approach has shown in like a couple different studies that what really blew my mind was that it took less time for more gains to be made. That was kind of the selling point for me. And I feel like all insurances would agree too. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, more bang for your buck. And it, it's funny, right? Like I think intuitively you're like, okay, language should be single words, sentences, then paragraphs. But you know, language is complicated. Brain injury is complicated. Sometimes like you're saying, just having more context Mm. To have more of a top-down approach really helps people with kind of organizing what they're trying to do. And like you're saying, you know, that complexity approach, big researchers for that are Cindy Thompson over at Northwestern University. So she's done a lot with syntax in terms of complexity training. And then also Swathi Kieran over at Boston University has done a lot in terms of naming for, for that kind of stuff. I feel like I was reading one time, maybe even a, um, a complexity approach for phonology, but I can't think off the top of my head what it was, but that would be, I think, also a cool area to see too, in terms of like spelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really agree with all of that. Like, I love it because like you mentioned how like, you know, we need more context, like when we're working on language and I have found that really lacks, like when we're doing very isolated, either like phoneme or single word level tasks with patients, because we're like, oh, we got to start off easy. But I'm like, they have no context. And language is now this abstract thing that they can't ground down. We're making it harder for them by isolating language now. 
100%. And, you know, even thinking back to like when you were a grad student and taking kind of your whatever classes, disorders, areas it was for language, where like you were learning the specific sentence types and like no one knows what like an object relative sentence is, but we know how to say them, right? So like, I think there is something to be said about it's tough to actually like meta think about the language structure. And then like you're saying to really make it very isolated can be hard for a lot of people. I think it's something when you're doing like these very, very impairment based exercises, I think that that is great as part of like a home exercise component to kind of have like your more foundational steps. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, during your treatment sessions, I think it is definitely worth everyone's time to really tie it around something that they want to do and something that they're going to get the most bang for their buck. And again, to give them more context and be able to walk out of the session, actually being able to use the language skills they've been working on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I, I really like hone in on that approach too, that like for that, that more technical type of homework or single word level type of stuff, like I say homework because that's how I think of it, right? Like, I'm like, these are probably things that once I kind of show you, you demonstrate for me that you can do them with like some moderate level of, of success then I can send you home to work on those outside of therapy. When we have this space time, let's work on language as it's meant to holistic. Absolutely. And again, we're so lucky to be in this day and age where we have all these different apps that can already kind of take more of these uh, very fine grained impairment based approaches that can be used again at home. Cause there is evidence that these, you know, approaches do work, you know, photomotor treatment has great research behind it and there are good outcomes from that very, specific and very uh, fine-grained single letter, single sound kind of training. But like you're saying, just make sure that we are really getting the most bang for our buck when it's us and the clients face-to-face. There was another question from one of our participants tonight who was asking about the website that we referred to as a resource. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure if they were talking about like the show notes on speechuncensored.com where like we have some of these links that you've been talking about and some of these articles that you've been referencing posted there or if it was the University of Arizona website that has like a treasure trove of everything Alexia and Agraphia. You know I, I kind of wonder it might be the Arizona one because I was looking the other day and it looks like they've actually they maybe have moved their platform. I think the university's kind of revamped how they've done their websites So I know that older links I've used to try and find these resources go to like a dead end because now it's on like a new website platform. Um, So I would just Google search, you know, Arizona battery for reading and spelling. And that when you Google search that, that's going to give you directly to the website that you need to be and not maybe an older version that they have. Mm, Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So you've talked about uh, tools for assessment and treatment at the single word level and the sentence and paragraph level. Mm-hmm. You've talked about assistive technology tools. Brett, was there any other pieces that you wanted to go over? Yeah, you know, since we've got time, in this day and age, we do lots of texting, right? And I think what is so cool now is that we actually have research studies, treatment approaches now for texting. Mm-hmm. So again, over at University of Arizona, they just do it all. The researcher name, this came out very recent. This is like 2020. So the researchers are going to be, I think the last name is Fine, is the, the first author. But they have a very nice approach to training text messaging, where the first step is that you're actually doing the copy and recall treatment but using text and they actually call it T-CART. So what you do 
is that again, you're choosing functional, personally relevant words. Your client is copying the written word three times via handwriting. Then they do it from memory without a model. Then you have them type it out three times on their cell phone with a model, and then ask them to write it on their cell phone, type it out uh, from memory without the model. And then if you're moving on into more kind of messages with texting, you can start doing some script training where you kind of develop some personally relevant scripts that are used across a variety of different functions. And then also you can talk about actually sending and receiving novel text as well. So really kind of addressing the pragmatics of texting and then also sort of the technical skills that comes with using maybe high information or sorry, high tech technology like smartphones. So again, there is stuff out there now for texting, which I think is so cool and so exciting. So I'm hopeful that that is kind of another line of research that really starts to be developed as well. My question is that, you know, when you were talking about like having to adapt some assessments for looking at discourse level writing and things like that, it made me think of how I've used CART in a more complex method, like at the sentence level. Oh, yes. And it was with that patient that I was thinking of, like when I stumbled upon the complexity approach, like I was already doing that with this patient. And then I, then I read some things about the complexity approach. And I was like, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> yes. And so when you were doing your uh, cart at the sentence level, can you kind of talk about what that looked like? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. So we know cart at the single word level is like you've picked out a series of words and I think in like the original protocol, they were just like sometimes just simple words, but we know now like we need to pick out words that are relevant and familiar to the person, like that would motivate them, words they want to practice that are meaningful to them and functional in their everyday life. So I took that idea and I made kind of a, like a, a table on a piece of paper and we would come up with 10 sentences or however many we could get through in a session. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to pick a topic. I'd be like, uh, well, tell me about your family. So we would try to generate 10 sentences that had to do with their family. Yeah. And I was really careful about always keeping it in the style that they phrased things. Because even when we make subtle differences, like, and this is where like, I get out of my depth on like how specific like language works. <laughs> but when we say like, I went to the movies yesterday, you could also say like, yesterday I went to the movies. That idea that you can just move words in different places, you say the same thing, the meaning doesn't change, the accuracy doesn't change. It's just, we have a different pattern of speech. I made really sure to always keep it consistent with the patient's pattern of speech um, and not alter it in that way. Because mm -hmm. I found when I did, that's when they would have difficulty. So after they would come up with the 10 sentences, but then when they did the program, they would read the sentence that we created Honestly, that was their sentence. They would read mm -hmm. that out loud. Then right next to it was a line for them to copy that sentence. Mm -hmm. And then after they copied it, I asked them to read it out loud again. Then they would flip the paper over and write that sentence from memory and then read it out loud again. So it was like, they're kind of doing like all the elements of, of language, like the reading, the writing and the speaking part of it. Um, and they would have an opportunity to write it two times on the back. Yeah. and then flip over the paper and do the next sentence. Yeah, I love that. I think that's an awesome approach. Isn't that fun? So we would build it in session and practice it in session so that I knew that they knew the steps and they could do those steps and then send it home. And they got all that practice at home. So then when they came in, we would just build new 
papers about different areas of their life. Well, tell me about where you last took a vacation. Tell me about your grandchildren. Tell me about your gardening hobby. You know, tell me how you prepare your grocery list. Like, (laughs) Like whatever, as long as we could work together to build a sentence. And sometimes with these folks, like their speech production wasn't, wasn't fluent. So we would get what we could and I would confirm with them. So that was also part of the testing was, is this sentence like makes sense to them too? Like, it was a logical sentence, like not like at all, but like, you know, like sometimes things don't like work for people. So and to have that dynamic assessment like you're talking about just kind of seeing what's working in the moments and yeah I love that I love that entire approach of kind of taking that from a single word to more of a sentence level I've done something kind of similar in the past where we would do kind of short phrases I had a client who is very cute you know he and his wife would always get like Hallmark cards to each other for like major holidays like it was like their one of their things to do that and you know he wanted to be able to write little messages in the cards so like we would train messages that he wanted to write in the card when he gave it to his wife for all the holidays and just like a way to really kind of again make it very real life things that you're going to immediately be using so it's yeah it's super fun mm-hmm. yeah I love it it was fun and honestly I didn't use I didn't adapt cart to to work on writing to work on a graphia I used it to work on verbal expression so that was how like I stumbled into it at the sentence level and started working on it because that was writing was a strength for the for these folks. Mm-hmm. So I was using their strengths of reading and writing to address their verbal expression. So yep. and again, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, again, language, the domains are ultimately separate, but they are connected. So like you're saying, for some people writing or reading is maybe more of a weakness or more of a strength and we can really use all the language modalities to help us in whatever treatment that we're thinking of to again support and dependency communication also as ways to really target specific things that we're working on in treatment too mm-hmm. yeah i love that you mentioned the t-cart option because i'm not familiar with the new article you said that was published in 2020 2020 yep Yeah, I've got to go and find that one. Um, There was an older article that was more just like a case study where they just kind of did it with one person just to kind of show how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a lot of different takeaways from that older article that I'm thinking about. But one of them was that they found that the the testing, like it, it worked for them, but they got better like lasting effects from the words that were trained by writing. And mm-hmm. I really feel like there's this, there's this thing out there and this other connection about that, like motor response to about writing. Cause uh-huh. isn't there something about like when we write notes, like when we're studying, that's better than if we type or just read notes. Am I just making things up now? No, I think you're right. I, I think I saw something similar to that as well. Who knows what the mechanism behind that is in terms of like, is it just like an engagement or like a more focused kind of thing? But I think there's also something we said too. I, I feel like with the motor component of writing, again, I'm not an OT, but I think that there is something to be said about, you know, you store motor programs of how letter formations look. So I think that there is sort of a boosted effect of having the written production really helping kind of ingrain what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I feel there's something that becomes like automatic in our memory about motor movements that becomes automatic that we don't then think about. It's that whole, like, once you learn to ride a bicycle, like you'll never forget, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's also what's so fun about like texting these days is like, 
there's just like so much you can do in terms of like GIF usage, or I've got a client who really likes emojis. So we'll work on, you know, kind of a T-cart approach of like, what's the specific word you need to type out in order to find the bitmoji that you want to send. So just like really fun ways to make like your texting really engaging and again, really meaningful. It's super fun. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I get excited by like the fun we can have in therapy and how enriching it can be to help people access their communication and all these different fun and creative routes. And like, yeah, like incorporating technology can be like a rip roaring good time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ooh, I know some of those gifts out there are just wild. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> it's like things you wouldn't type, but you would send a gif about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, what's that phrase? A picture is worth a thousand words. I mean, how much can you say through a gift? So. Right. And you know what I've also noticed is like the best gifts are like people's expressions. Right. And I feel like this is like a whole nother tangent, but I feel like, like scratching the surface about how much communication we send with body language and facial expressions. And like you just said, a picture sends a thousand words, like so does our expression and like our body language. And that's why we pick those gifts of like that epic eye roll or like the whole body like shrug or something like that, because they're just like mood, you know? It's like, totally, totally. Words to describe, but you know what I mean? Exactly. And you know, it's funny because there are some, I don't know the names off the top of my head right now, but I know that there are some like, texting-like apps out there that have been developed, sometimes specifically for aphasia, sometimes not, that are purely just like icons and emojis and just kind of uh, pictures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the fact that there are several programs out there and people use them really says that you can convey a lot just through pictures itself. I mean, it's, it's really cool. Mm, I like that. I was trying to think if there was anything else. Oh, oh, I have a question, okay. What are some different quality of life measures we can use as it relates to agraphia? Because, you know, patient reported outcome measures are my jam. So let's sneak that in. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So again, one test, the comprehensive aphasia test has an entire disability questionnaire that really breaks apart all four of the language modalities and asks people, you know, how do you feel about your writing? How do you feel in this instance when you're trying to write, writing specific things? And it's on a scale of like, I think like zero to five or something. So that's a great sort of quality of life patient report outcome measure you can use. And then there's also a great checklist called the communication activities checklist. And I think the author's Cruz uh, that has writing specific questions as well. So I look into those for your trying to do your quality of life stuff. Cruz and tell me that name again or the like title of it? Disability. Yeah. Communication Activities Checklist. Okay, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Something to that effect. Activity Checklist. Okay, got it. <laughs> all right. On that note, I also like to consider visuals to help your patient with aphasia, like describe the severity as you like ask them these questions. Cause they're, they're almost always on some kind of Likert scale, totally. right? Of like little to a lot. So I like using a battery icon. And so like the little is like the empty battery, but you like draw the bar, like the empty bars in there. Mm -hmm. And then the next one would be like a quarter. The next one is like half. The next one is three quarters. And the last one is like full. And you can adjust that to however many options there are for your particular Likert scale. But because like nearly everybody is working with some level of technology. Like they know that battery symbol. 
And so you don't, you don't have to explain full battery. That's desirable. That's awesome. That's working at full power, right? The empty batteries, oops, you're dead. You're empty, right? Oh, that's amazing. You know, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna start using that now. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to do that. Yes, because, you know, it's hard with some of these writing skills sometimes. Like either the ones that are published by the test sometimes aren't the most like intuitive, especially for people with like profound language disorders. But yeah, that battery is just so universal. That's, that's awesome. I'm going to start using that now. That's good. Yeah, that's right. That's what we're here for, right? Sharing these ideas. <laughs> Absolutely. Better together. Yep. And our last question tonight is for you to mention the name of that aphasia test that you were just talking about. I think it's the initials are CAT. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. So that is the comprehensive aphasia test. So this is a test that was developed out of the UK. So there are a couple of items that are kind of uh, British specific slang, but not like a whole lot. But I like the test a lot because it is very psycholinguistic based. So it has basically all sorts of subtests that really break down language at like the single word level, the sentence level, and then kind of the paragraph or discourse level. Mm -hmm. And there are norms for every single subtest too. So you don't need to give the whole battery. You can just give your little subtest for what it is you're trying to look at. And there will be norms there for you to use. And they've also got a nice cognitive screener too that you can give to your clients that looks for like things like visual neglect and what they call semantic memory, kind of like a short-term memory task. So I, I personally love that test. I think the world of it. So I would definitely consider looking into it. Very good. You know, I've heard about the cat. I just, I like everything by calling it by its acronyms. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard about the cat before. I've not been able to use it. I've not been exposed to it in practice, but every time I hear about it from people who use it, like they really like it. Like they're big fans. Yeah. I, you know, I would take the cat every single day over even more traditional tests like the WAB or the BDAE. I just am, I really feel that strongly about it. That says a lot, right? That that tells me a lot. I'm going to have to look into this. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's our time. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Brett, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. People feel free to reach out to me. I'm Instagram. I'm at Archways Rehab, or you can either go to my website, www.archraiserehab.com and send me a message through my email there. That's totally good too. All right. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Brett. You're such a treasure. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Leanne. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 